Amen. Well, today's Sunday, but as you know, tomorrow is going to be uh, Monday morning. Uh, is there anybody here who gets excited about Mondays? Um, I do because Monday is my day off, so it's like y'all's Saturday, that's my Monday. But most of us, the alarm clock goes off on Monday morning, and you've had kind of a full weekend. Maybe you, uh, you, you stayed up late on Sunday night, you watched too much TV, and you roll out of bed, and your eyes are kind of full of all of the, you know, the bacon bits that you get in your eye when you sleep too long, and uh, you begin, immediately begin to think about the dozen things that you sort of put off all weekend for Monday morning. You think about what's going to happen as a new week hits you in the side of the head like a two-by-four. You've got to get to work on time. You've got to run to the store on the way home because you, you kind of push that off over the weekend. You've got to get to the dentist. Oh, yeah, Tuesday morning. You've got to be at the dentist, and mm, they probably have a cavity. You begin to think about that. And uh, you've got to get to your nephew's soccer game that's on Thursday night, and on and on and on and on and on. Your mind begins to race a million miles an hour with all of these things. As you get ready for the day, already sort of running about 10 minutes late, because let's be honest, you hit the snooze once or twice or eight times. As you get ready for the day, you turn the TV on, so you've got WKRG kind of going in the background telling you about what's going on and all the traffic pileups that are happening in the tunnel. It's only 7 in the morning, but already there's somebody who has stopped the tunnel up. That's par for the course. On your five-minute uh, commute to, or let's say 15-minute commute to work, uh, you turn on the radio, that plays sort of in the background to sort of drown out the noise. As you have your lunch break at work, as you sort of scarf down your sandwich, you're scrolling through social media, you're looking at Twitter or Instagram or Facebook or whatever your social media site is that you prefer, and sort of more information, more noise coming at you. All throughout the day, emails, text messages, and weather alerts ding all day long on your phone, or if you're like me, on your smartwatch, these things are coming in, grabbing your attention all day long. After work, you swing by the gym, and while you're working out, you've got the earbuds in and the music on. If you think about it, your whole day from the moment you wake up till you finally collapse at the end, into bed at the end of the day, you know, after dinner, turn on the TV, watch something, has been marked by constant noise. An unbroken hurry, sort of feeling five minutes late from every appointment to the next appointment to the next appointment, hurrying, 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 as you take in information, as there's noise going on physically. And I'll say this, a lot of times the noise that we have in our lives simply is an amplification of the noise that is in our souls, the chaos that is going on in our hearts. In fact, I would say oftentimes the noise that is in our hearts, the noise that is in our souls, is even louder than the noise that goes on around us. You see, even when the, the music stops and the earbuds get put away to charge and the TV gets turned off for the night, the noise in our souls often continues. It's kind of like that spinny merry-go-round thing at the playground that wants the kids to fly off and it keeps on spinning and that feels like the hamster wheel keeps on going even though the hamster has died. Your mind is going a million miles a minute. It won't stop and it's like chaos. It's like a screaming infant that will not calm down. And sometimes even you feel physical effects from this kind of anxiety, this kind of noise in your soul. Your, your breathing quickens, your heart races. You might even get to a place where you almost shut down physically with a, with a panic attack. What I'm calling a noisy soul is sort of a spectrum of what many today will call anxiety. From just low-grade worry and, and hurry and noise in the souls to all the way to crippling anxiety on this sliding scale. 
Noisy souls are a contemporary pandemic in our world today. And to be sure, the noise level does have a dial from low-grade worry. It's like static in the background to just overwhelming panic that blares like a rock concert. But unlike the podcast or the TV show, there's not oftentimes an off switch for the worry, for the anxiety. Those worries are with you when you wake up at 2 in the morning. They're with you when you get out of bed in the morning. And they sort of trail you around like a, like a well-behaved dog all day. There they are. There's the worries. There's the anxieties. The noisy soul can keep you awake at night when everything is quiet and when the lights are out and when the sound is turned off. Maybe what I just described is like, man, that sounds totally like me. Were you listening in on on my mind, on my heart? I think all of us at times can experience what what I just described, the the onslaught of anxiety, the the grip of, of worry, the noisy soul that won't quite ever turn off. Do you ever feel like your mind is a never-ending roller coaster? It doesn't let you off when the ride is over, but then just keeps on going again. Or it's like a washing machine that gets stuck on the spin cycle, right? And it just won't, won't stop spinning. Or maybe a track that gets caught on, the, sort of this, on repeat, and it's the same song going on again and again, playing the same song of fear and worry. It's what we might call worry. We might call anxiety. The text that Raymer read, Jesus says, take no thought. That's literally the idea of your thoughts being divided and playing, playing tug of war with each other. Contrast what I just described to the psalm we just read. Let me read it again. It's only three verses. Lord, my heart is not haughty, or mine eyes lofty. Neither do I exercise myself in great matters or in things too high for me. Surely I have behaved and quieted myself as a child that is weaned of his mother. My soul is even as a weaned child. Let Israel hope in the Lord from henceforth and forever. I love that description in verse 2. He says, my soul is like... It's been calmed, that word translated behaved. I have calmed and quieted my soul. That's what we're going for, a a relationship with Jesus where we're rolling our anxieties, our fears, our worries onto him, where our soul, rather than being the chaos, the spin cycle, can be the place that is calm. Rather than the screaming baby, the baby that has been well-fed, that has fallen asleep on his mother's shoulder. That's the picture we're getting in verse 2. What a contrast this is with the hurry and the worry of modern life. This is a psalm that shows us a better way than just sort of, well, just keep up with the noise, keep up with the hurry. The psalmist here is not hurried. He is not anxious. He's not rushed. He's not worried. And maybe you think, well, this is because the psalmist here is living in an ancient agrarian society where they don't have smartphones and technology. He has it made. Maybe it's because he doesn't have problems. I have a lot of problems in my life. This guy must not. Or maybe he lived quietly in a lakeside cabin far away from the pressures of modern life. He obviously didn't have Twitter. But you notice who wrote this? It's a song of degrees by whom? David. David, you do not have to be a biblical scholar to know that David actually had a crazy life. He had a really hard life. If there's anyone that we would expect and we would even excuse being gripped by anxiety and worry, it'd be David. After all, many of us get worried and anxious just sort of managing our schedule. We're like, that's all, that's all I can cope with, right? Or managing my family or managing sort of my job. Here's a guy who is literally managing an entire kingdom. And in a world where the king was expected to make all of the big decisions, he doesn't have a bunch of sort of cabinet officers who he delegates things to. This is an absolute monarchy. 
Here's a guy with enormous responsibility on his shoulders. He is both the, the, the king leading the nation. He is the chief sort of executive. He's also the chief judicial officer. He's the one who leads the army into battle. Speaking of battles, surrounded by enemies on all sides, if you look at Israel's geography, on all three of the sides, one side there's an ocean, the other three sides, there's enemies who are trying to kill them at all points in time. He's got enemies like the Philistines. Earlier in his life, he had the danger from a guy named Saul. He's get a, he get, David gets anointed king. And Saul is already king. He does not like the fact that God has picked someone else. So he spends years trying to kill David. And here he is running from place to place to place, living in caves. He does not have the housing thing figured out. And all of his friends are a bunch of other people in the same place that he is. He's got would-be usurpers. You're like, well, maybe he's writing this later on once he's become king. And now he has it all together. Well, you read the account of David's reign in 1 Samuel. Most of his reign was spent sort of fending off enemies from the outside and enemies from the inside. He gets a rebellion from his son Absalom, who turns the nation against him and tries to kill his own dad. Like, man, I thought I had a, a messed up family. Try David's family. Towards the end, another, son named, uh, another guy named Adonijah tries to take over. There, there, there's Sheba's rebellion. There's all of these problems that plague his kingdom. There's pestilence. There's plagues. There, there, there's not to mention his own sin. He lived in a time when medical technology was non-existent. If you get injured in battle, well, you're probably going to die from that little wound in your flesh because there's no antibiotics, there is no painkiller, there is no anesthesia. He lived in a time when death was close and disease was rampant. Chances are life expectancy in David's time is like 25 to 30 years old. Normal for infants to die right after they're born. Normal for for moms to die in childbirth. That's the world he lived in. By comparison, our lives are smooth sailing. Livelihood was dependent on the whims of the weather. So we've had kind of a dry fall. But I don't think there's any of us today who are like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to eat because it hasn't rained in a while. David's world, if you didn't get good weather, if you had a drought, massive plague and death would ensue. In spite of all of that, David was able to face all of those problems, let's face it, greater problems than most of us will ever encounter in our entire lives. And be able to say, I've been able to to calm and quiet my heart like a child asleep on his mother. If David can do it, we can do it. He's giving us this roadmap towards towards peace. They're like, hey, I really want to know, what is the the secret? I I, want to have that kind of peace, that kind of rest and calm in my heart. Not the chaos and the hurry and always running, 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 running and never quite being able to stay caught up with everything. Sure, there's things we can get about scheduling and making lists and all of that that can be useful tools. But the real issue is a heart issue. Let's just walk through these three verses. Each one of us gives us a a key to sort of unlock the, the gates on the path to this garden of peace. These keys to enjoying peace, tranquility, rest in our souls. First one's very simple in verse 1. Peace requires humility. Now, that might surprise you. Like, I've never made a connection between peace and humility. But here's a question for you. Are you quiet on the inside like David describes in verse 2? Let me ask you another question. What exactly is it that sort of stirs your heart up? What is it that agitates you? What is it that makes you feel restless? Maybe even just jot that down in the margin of your notes like, Here's the three things that come to my mind that leave me 
feeling really anxious and agitated this morning. The things that even now are like, I'm having a hard time focusing because these thoughts are like invading and intruding onto the edges of my mind. What is it that ruffles your feathers, that triggers your anxiety, that sets you on edge? Now, here's the other question I want to ask you. When you are worried and when you are anxious, what is it that you are after? You see, the Bible teaches that every sin and every problem in our lives arises from our hearts. So underneath these anxieties and these fears and these these worries are a set of desires and things that we're after. And I would venture a guess to say almost all of the things that make us worried and anxious come down to these two basic desires. One of them is, I want to be in control of my life. Right, I want to be in control, and there's these things that are kind of taking away my control, that are outside of my purview, outside of my ability to, to run and to manipulate. So a desire for control often leads to anxiety. And the other thing is a desire for comfort. I want my life to be easy. I want things to be smooth sailing. Who doesn't want that? And here's some things that are interrupting and taking away my, my comfort and the, the ease of my life, and so they are leaving me with anxiety. Things I can't control, things that take away my comfort. Now, if we were to put those into one word, I want to be in control of my life, and I want my life to be comfortable and easy. If we were to say one word to summarize those, it would be the word pride. So is it not a surprise, or is it not clear then that why David says in verse 1, this connection between a noisy soul and a humble heart, or a proud heart. My heart is not haughty. So he starts with the heart. Starts with the heart. He says, My heart is not haughty, nor mine eyes lofty. Now, another word here as we talk about pride. This diagnosis of pride, saying underlying the bad kind of anxiety in our lives is pride, helps us understand there is a good kind of concern. Uh, the, the opposite of worry is not just stoic indifference. I don't care what happens to me or anyone else. That's not a good way to live. Okay, the goal is not, I want to be emotionless and numb through life so I don't ever feel anxiety. That's a ditch on the other side of the road to say, I'm just not going to feel anything. So just indifference. So we've got indifference on one side and we've got anxiety on the other. The, the, the road between the two of them is contentment, right? So what's the difference between sinful anxiety and the good kind of concern? By the way, the, the, the word the Bible uses for anxiety and the word for concern, it's the same word. Context is going to tell us whether it's the good kind of concern or the bad kind of concern. The bad kind of concern is driven by a pride and a desire to be in control. The good kind of concern is driven by a desire to fulfill my responsibilities and to serve other people. So Paul will say in Philippians uh, of Timothy, there's no one else like-minded who will care for your state. This godly care and concern for the well-being of others. Not in in a controlling and beyond the reach of what he can accomplish kind of way. It's pride that sort of cuts between bad, sinful anxiety that takes over our lives and the good kind of concern for the people and the responsibilities in our lives. Let me put it another way. The good kind of concern leads to problem solving. The bad kind of worry does not. So concern is like going on a walk. Okay, you go on a walk, you, you actually get somewhere. Worry is like a treadmill. You just expend energy and get nowhere. That's the difference to evaluate. Say, well, I'm not really worried. I'm just concerned. Okay, is it leading to you actually solving problems and bringing you a place of rest? Good good kind of concern will bring you to a place of rest. A walk renews you. A treadmill exhausts you. Worry solves things, or, or concern solves things. Worry does not. So back to the text. He says, my heart is not haughty, 
nor mine eyes lofty. So heart and eyes, inside and outside. It says there's not, there's not pride here in my heart. Now notice just that first word, Lord. He's addressing this to God. We've, we've noted this every week in this series that as we approach uh, abuse, we talked about that last week, as we, as we approach despair, the Christian biblical approach is seeing these things in relationship to God. Not just a relation to the problems, but a relation to God. So he's praying this to God. God, my heart's not haughty. The life of faith is a life of prayer. And while it's clear that David has the highest view imaginable of God's majesty and glory, he is not afraid to address him with this familiarity and this directness, to even compare himself to a weaned child in relation to God. What's the heart? The heart is the control center of the life, the motivational core of the personality. So he starts with that and says, my heart is not haughty. There's a genuine humility and trust. So again, anxiety and restlessness flow from an arrogant heart. A heart that says, I want to be in control and I can be in control. That will be a heart that is always unsettled. It's the kind of heart that will be anxious in social settings because it wants to be, I want to make sure I fit in, I want to make sure that I'm recognized, I want to make sure I don't look dumb, and so that we always worry, what will people think, what do people think, what do people think? That what do people think is simply pride. It's pride that leads to anxiety. He says, nor my eyes arrogant. This internal heart is expressed in the outlook. Think about the eyes. Now, this could be the eyes that are looking down on other people about, I am so much better than other people. That also leads to all kinds of anxiety. Because if I've got my place at the top of the pyramid, what am I worried about? Other people getting to a higher pyramid or displacing me from my pyramid, right? So this, this, this arrogance of position will also lead to anxiety, will also lead to worry, will also lead to looking down on other people with disdain, but never looking at people eyeball to eyeball in love. You see, some people look at other people either as people who are beneath them that are not worth my time or people above me who I need to sort of lick their boots and try to attain their position. Love looks at people as individuals made in the image of God. It says, my eyes are not arrogant. I don't look at people and situations with pride. He goes on, neither, okay, looking back in verse 1, again, I hope you have your Bibles open to see what I'm saying here from the text, not making stuff up. This is God's inspired word. Neither do I exercise myself in great matters. I don't walk or live in great matters or in things too high for me. He's like, I stay sort of in my lane, in my place. I don't walk in great things. Now, this is a stunning thing for one of the great, greatest leaders in, in world history to say. David's probably the greatest man in 1000 BC. His son Solomon's going to rule a great empire. And he says this, I don't have great aspirations, as one translation puts it. I don't have this unholy ambition for that which is beyond my reach. If you're always reaching, always reaching, always reaching, you will have an anxious, unsettled, noisy soul. Unrestrained ambition fuels restlessness. This idea that I, 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 I need a, a bigger house and a newer car and a better job and more recognition and more of this. If you ask yourself this question, what is it that I really want and need in life? And the answer is more fill in the blank. Chances are, the lack of the more fill in the blank is what is fueling your anxiety and your worry. And there's a lack of contentment and resting in God. And in fact, that thing that you are after, you think I say, I need this to have contentment, is your, is your idol. That is the God that you are functionally worshiping. In our culture, we are taught to nurture our ambition. 
Follow your dreams. Be the best you can be. Settle for nothing less than complete autonomy and fulfillment. You can be whatever you want is the message of our culture. We find the alluring promise that security and happiness is found in more friends, more money, more time, more learning, more achievement, more acceptance, more coffee, more stuff, more followers, and so on. We believe that promise, and we wonder why we are living in an anxious age. Unbridled ambition. No surprise that we live in an anxious age when we feed the monster of ambition. Verse 1, the last clause here. So I don't, I don't walk in, I'm not too ambitious, great matters, or in things too high for me. This word too high is the things that are too wonderful, that are beyond my ability to comprehend. Something to be, ex, to be surpassing or extraordinary. Now here's the deal. The, these, the, these two terms, things too great and things too wonderful, these terms put together in the Hebrew show up in, in several places. And they typically refer to God's, God's unique governance and control over the universe. Okay, so when he says things too great and things too wonderful, ultimately what he is saying is things that belong rightly in God's hands. That is control. One of the most wonderful teachings in the Bible is the teaching of the sovereignty of God. That God is king over his universe, and he works all things according to the counsel of his will. And he does whatever his heart and his mind desires in heaven and earth. And there's no one who can say to him, what are you doing? He's a God who answers to no one. A God who runs the universe. A God who sees to it that the earth spins on its axis. That gravity always attracts one, one mass to a larger mass. He's the one who, who, who rules all of the creation in any moment. He's the one who holds all the atoms together. He's the one who makes the sun rise and the sun set. He's the one who causes the water vapors rising to cause, or cause the, the air to condense and rain to fall. He's the one who does all of those things. He's the one who makes the grass grow and keeps our hearts beating and the blood flowing and the, the oxygenation circulating through our body. He does all of that. Here's where our problem is, is when we try to be God. The bottom of our anxiety is the lie in the Garden of Eden. Eat the tree, of, eat this fruit, and you will be like God. You can be in control of your life. You can sort of plan for every eventuality. You can foresee every problem coming down the road, and you can plan for it and have a contingency for it. And that's what fuels our anxiety, this notion that I can be in control. You ever try to nail down security in your life? You're like, you know what, through... If I sort of manipulate all the people in my life, I can get them to move on the chessboard the way I want to, like sort of pawns and, and, and rooks and all those things. You ever try to nail down security through acquisition? If I can just get enough. If I can have my bank account, my, you know, if I can get my six months of living expenses swirled away in a, in a bank account, not only will Dave Ramsey be very happy with me, I won't have to worry about something coming, coming my way. Or if I have just enough insurance and enough in my 401k and enough coming in, then I'll have security. I'm all for saving, okay? Don't hear me as saying spend all your money and be reckless. But the problem is when we think I can find security in acquisition and getting stuff. You know what happens to people who think that if I can sort of get everyone to do what I want, they become control freaks, become incredibly manipulative, deceptive kinds of individuals. You know, the people who think I can have security through acquisition... They become workaholics, people who are like, I'm going to work 80 hours a week so I can just have enough and a little bit more to feel like I can be safe to then retire. You ever find yourself trying to control other people's choices, directions in life? 
a lot of times where that leaves you is feeling pretty frustrated because people are tough to control. It leaves you suspicious where you're always doubting what's everyone else's motives. Why are they trying to undermine my security in life? It leaves you manipulative and angry. What happens when you try to control your health in such a way to say, I don't ever want to get sick because ultimately we're afraid of getting sick because we know we're going to die one day. What does that do? What happens when you try to guarantee you'll never experience pain or any kind of loss? Well, you become consumed with anxiety. You become obsessed with controlling your circumstances. What happens when you think my security will be found in guaranteeing that everybody will like me and accept me and celebrate me and so on? Well, you become incredibly socially anxious. Because I'm trying to control what, how everyone else will respond to me. You become either an actor trying to play to the audience or you just become an incredibly sort of blunt, I'm just going to be me, and you don't care about what anyone thinks. My point here, I'm not trying to get things too high for me, trying to control and manipulate and run my life and control my life in a way that God never ordained me to be able to do. You see, even the great King David knew there were some things that were beyond his ability to control. This is kind of crazy. Someone who's a great ruler is like, you know what, I'm not trying to control things that are God's to control. I know my limits, and I humbly accept them before God. So the point of this verse is pretty simple. Achievement and ambition will never provide contented calm, but will only fuel anxious worry. Achievement, ambition, arrogance, pride, presumption, none of these things. So you say, I could never without, or if only I had more. Those are the lies that fuel anxiety's fire. So listen, a fire only works if there's wood being put on it. The the, the wood that must be thrown on the fire of anxiety are lies. The lies that say, I can be in control, and if only I have X, I'll be happy. Pallison compares pride as a ladder that goes to nowhere. Um, You ever try to climb a ladder that's not leaning against something? You're like, no, that sounds like a really dumb thing to do. Well, that's something we, when I worked construction with some other sort of knuckleheaded college students, we would take a ladder and we would stand it up and be like, as fast as you can, see how high you can get up the ladder before it tips over. That's what it, trying to use pride is, trying to follow the path of pride to get to security, that's, that's what it's like. It's trying to climb a stairway made out of sand. So hopefully you can see from David's argument here that peace requires humility. Maybe there's anxiety in your heart that you need to confess to God as sin because being driven by pride. Now, that's a kind of countercultural thing to say because the, the common idea is anxiety is a sickness over which you have no control. The Bible presents anxiety as a sin, a sin for which I am responsible. Now, it does become a habit, and there begin to be physical sort of habitual dimensions to it, but this anxiety driven by pride is sin that we need to confess to God. Now, here's a second, second statement. Peace not only requires humility, it requires contentment. Which I guess that's almost a tautology to say peace requires peace. That's what contentment is, peace, contentment. They're sort of synonymous. But here's what I'm drilling down to in the second point, in the second verse, is that there is this process of getting myself to a place of contentment. Contentment and peace is not about your genetics or the chemical balance or lack thereof in your brain. It's about getting yourself to a place where you are trusting and resting in all, who, all that God is for us. Surely, in contrast to what I said in verse 1, I've behaved and quieted myself 
Okay, I've soothed, I've calmed myself, I've quieted myself like a child that is weaned. There's two words here. Uh, the word translated behaved is the idea of soothing, of smoothing. Uh, you think of an ocean that's all choppy. Jesus says, peace be still, and it's like glass. So I've done that with my soul. Or you think of a job site. You're getting ready to build, build a house, and it's all sort of, the ground comes, you get the bulldozer, you smooth it out. He's saying that's what we need to do with our souls, is bring our souls into a place of being smooth, of being soothed, stilled my soul. The second verb here is the, the word quieted, is to grow silent and to grow still. We talked about noise, all the noise makers in our heart and you Pull the plug on those. The noisy and the chaotic soul is brought to a place here of calm silence. One of the things about pride, pride likes to speak. Humility is willing to listen. So you're only going to grow silent before God when you're humbled before God. Pride is noisy. Humility is calm and quiet. Now, I, I like how this is rendered. I have behaved and quieted myself. Like, I have taken, taken my soul by the lapel, so to speak, and been like, listen here, soul. Be still before God. We get an example of this in Psalm 42, where the, where the psalmist will say, Why art thou cast down within me, O my soul? Hope thou in God. He starts preaching to himself. He starts taking control of his soul and saying, here's what's true. A lot of us have sort of believed the idea that whatever we feel or whatever our bodies are telling us, we must do. No, no, no. We obey God's truth even when our feelings and our minds are trying to go another direction. Multiple verses talk about taking stock of ourselves, speaking truth to our troubled hearts. We're talking about seizing God's promises and laying hold of who he is. Now, this is not simply a matter of willpower, but this is rather a, a, an act of taking God at his word and in faith saying, I'm going to trust your promises even for what's in front of me. What does this process look like of, of calming our hearts? Go over with me to the book of Philippians chapter 4. This is sort of the classic text about anxiety and worry. Philippians chapter 4. Passage that uses the word anxiety, a passage that uses peace a couple of times. Beginning in verse 5. Philippians 4, verse 5. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Be careful, be anxious. That's the, the Greek word there. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And that let your request be made known to God, that's an imperative. Your request must be made known to God. That's a command. And here's the result. And the peace of God. That's what we're talking about, peace, contentment, rest, which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts, shall guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. So this peace that walls around your heart, that protects it from the invasion of, of worry, anxiety. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, Whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are uh, pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of a good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. Those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me, do, and the God of peace shall be with you. So notice we get sort of these couplets. Take your worries to God and God's peace will guard you, and then think right and do right, and the God of peace shall be with you. Sort of two different ways of saying the same thing. 
How is it we go about getting our hearts stilled and calmed? Okay, we're getting a process that's laid out here in Philippians 4. Pretty simply, if you want to still your heart before God, you pray right. You, you take all the needs, all the anxieties, all the worries, and you take them to God. I know it's like a really simple point. And some people are like, that's so cliche, that's so sort of, sort of hallmark card. Just, well, just pray about your problems. But are you doing that? I mean, that's a, it's a fair question. Are you, are you doing that? Are you taking your anxieties, your worries to God, listing them out, being like, what is it that I'm actually agitated about, and then taking it to God? I'm not just talking about an amorphous sort of vague, God, I feel kind of worried. Specify it. Write them down. And here's the thing, by the way. If you, if you write down the things that are causing you anxiety and worry, you will realize that, prob- that that list is finite, right? Because sometimes we feel like, I'm just overwhelmed. Everything is terrible and awful. Well, okay, start to quantify. What is it that is bringing agitation and fear to me? You list it out, you realize, okay, this, there's, maybe there's 23 things on that list. Chances are there's probably more like two or three. I'm going to take those to God. Pray those to God. I know that he is near. I'm going to take it to God. By the way, notice that this prayer and thanksgiving, uh, prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. When you are overcome by anxiety, are you ever a thankful person? Here's the reality. Anxious people are rarely thankful people. And thankful people are rarely anxious people. Thanksgiving has a way of driving anxiety sort of out of the house. So like, we're going to get this out. We're going to chase this out. Thanksgiving is a great tool, a great weapon in our arsenal to go to war against the intrusions of anxiety. Thanksgiving drives it out by focusing on what God is doing and what is going well in our lives to say, okay, it feels like everything's horrible, but as I thank God, I realize there's 50 other things that were in the background I didn't even notice that I'm going to give God the credit and the praise for. It puts so much into perspective. It helps us see our problems, which feel really massive when we're staring at them, into a context where we see God's goodness framing them out. So you you, you pray right, and then you think right. Verse 8, whatsoever things are true. I said a minute ago, anxiety is the result of believing what is false. There's a lie that you're believing that's leading to your anxiety. God's not actually good, or I've got to be in control, or these things are all my responsibility, that God's like, actually, that's not your responsibility. You think right. You reject every lie that fuels the anxiety. You see, a lot of times we we become anxious because we sort of look down the road and we're like, man, there's 50 things coming at me that could go wrong, and so I need to sort of plan for all of them. And isn't it always the case it's the 51st thing you didn't plan for that actually gets you? And the other sort of 50 things on your list never actually happen. We can be so unrealistic about it. And I think it was uh, um, Calvin Coolidge who says, if you see 10 problems coming down the road at you, you can be sure that nine of them will run into the ditch before they get to you. Um, I'll add to that. The one that gets you is the one that came up from behind you that you weren't even, weren't even thinking about. So think right. But then verse 9 The command here is Paul lists out these things that God has shown you. He says, be doing those things. So often the anxieties we face are things that are not even our responsibility. Become anxious about things that are for tomorrow. Guess who controls tomorrow? God. Guess who controls the future for my kids? God. Guess who controls the future for this nation? God. Guess who determines the date of my death? You guessed it. It's God. Who is sovereign over my health? It's God. And so think of all the problems on your list and think of them going on different shelves and you're you're in Costco. You know, they have those things up on the top shelf and they've got to bring the big forklift in to come get them. 
Think of these different troubles, these things on the list of what you're worried about going on different shelves. There's some shelves that are right at eye level that you have the responsibility to take those things off of and put them back on. And there's some things that go on the top shelf. They belong to the guy with the forklift, in our analogy, God. Separate out those things that you are worried about. Here's the things that I am directly responsible for today. And the ones that are not my responsibility, those are God's, and I'm going to consciously think of them as going on that top shelf as belonging to God, under his authority, under his control. Let me give you an example. As a parent, you might be saying, I am so worried about how my kids will turn out. It is not your responsibility to ensure your kids turn out. It is your responsibility to be faithful in raising them. It's not, your, it's not your ability to say, I'm going to ensure that they come to saving faith in Jesus. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. That's not a work of any human being. What God does call you to is, okay, I can't control whether or not my kids get saved or if they turn out or if they're going to make good and right and holy decisions. What I am responsible for is I'm supposed to read the Bible to them, teach them how to pray, bring them up in the discipline and admonition of Christ. And that's what I'm supposed to be doing today. Just as an example. You might say, well, I want to live a long life, and I want to make sure I don't die, and and all these sort of things. That goes on the top shelf. That's God's control. But what is on the shelf right in front of me is, well, I can choose what I'm going to eat today. I'm going to choose whether or not I go for a walk this morning. There's things that are within my control and those things that are God's will that I am supposed to be doing right now. Let me say something that maybe is going to sound a little too direct. You're like, I'm, I'm overcome with anxiety, and I just, I don't know if I can go to church today because I have so much anxiety. I don't know if I can sort of do the dishes today because so much anxiety. You need to ask this question, what is God's will for me to be doing right now? And you do it whether you feel like it or not. So I'm overcome with anxiety. I don't know if I can, I can do the dishes. No, you do the dishes whether or not you feel like it. I don't feel like I can go to church and worship with God's people. You do the next right thing, even if you don't feel like it. And there may just be this this power of obeying God that will begin to melt anxiety like an ice cube in the sun. Take the problems to God. You think right. And you take up the responsibility God has given for you to do. And I think that will lead us to that place that Psalm 131 says, I have calmed my heart. I have stilled my soul before God. So back to Psalm 131. I love the word picture here. He's like a baby that has been fed. Those of you who have ever had infants, you know, like when they're hungry, they let you know all about it. When the baby is unfed, when the baby is noisy, when the baby is agitated, it's chaos and it's noise. It's what what a metaphor for an anxious heart. But then the baby gets fed, and if things are going really well, the baby falls asleep in mom's arms and just... Right there. There's, there's nothing quite like having a, a baby fall asleep in your arms. And he now clings to, to mommy, not because he's hungry, but because he likes being with mommy. The psalmist is saying that's where our souls, our hearts need to get with God. No longer I'm agitated and, God, I need this and I need that. And then we find ourselves satisfied with God and we rest in his arms because we love being close to God. What a picture. That's a picture of the quiet soul, one that has been satisfied and one that is at rest. Notice this comes at the end of a process. This is not a, here's the silver bullet and you will no longer have anxiety. It's a process that you might have to do every day and multiple times a day of take the the needs to God in prayer, drive out the lies with truth, find out what's my responsibility and do it, and then rest 
in God, this place of contentment. Again, the goal is not an emotionless life where we experience no kind of uncertainty. No, that would be colorless and bland. We're not going after numb indifference, but decided contentment of saying, I'm going to rest in God, even though the things may still be going on out there that would threaten to steal my peace. But a third final key here, peace requires hope. So it requires humility, requires this process of becoming content in God, this sort of, we double-click here, we go over to Philippians 4, but finally it requires hope. The psalmist turns from speaking sort of personally to speaking corporately. Let Israel hope in the Lord from henceforth and forever. So he's speaking to Israel, to all of God's people. This is not just something for a few people who are like, here I am over here, I've got anxiety, and I feel like sort of a, a, person, a pariah on the, on the outskirts. No, this is all of us. We all need this message of hoping in God. It goes from the individual to the community. It says, wait, hope. This is the same word, by the way, we saw back in 130. Like wait, for, like someone waiting for the sunrise. It's a faith-filled anticipation of a yet unfulfilled promise. It's active anticipation that, God, I'm ready, I'm waiting for you. You're going to come through. Now, notice the object of it. Let Israel hope in Yahweh. Let Israel hope in the Lord, the one who is the I Am, the one who is all-satisfying, the God who is supremely glorious and infinitely good. Trust in that God. Trust in His character. Trust in His promises. Rest in His presence. He will fulfill. You see, peace will only come when we fully trust in God's plan to make all things new and to be our God. Remember I said anxiety comes when we try to be in control? What if there's a God who is able to control all the things that we cannot control and is indeed doing so, whether or not we realize it? You see, instead of running after ambitions you'll never catch, instead of trying to run up ladders that are standing vertically in the yard, trust in the God who will never change. This is the one we know in the New Testament as Jesus of Nazareth. He's not a different than the Yahweh of the Old Testament. He is Yahweh in the flesh. He is the I Am. He is Jehovah. Stayed upon Jehovah. Hearts are fully blessed. We're talking about Jesus. The one who said, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. This rest begins in resting in him for our salvation. Really, nothing that I've said this morning will, will be much help to you. If at the bottom of your heart, you're pursuing the one thing you ultimately will never, ever catch on your own, and that is God's forgiveness and God's favor. You'll never be able to get that on your own. You'll never achieve enough to be able to say, here's God's standard, and I have now reached it. No, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God massively. Uh, our sin is us laboring, working, trying to achieve trying to get God's favor, trying to get him to, to sort of like us on our own terms. And sort of every other anxiety is simply an expression of that same basic reality. I need other people to approve me. I need other people to justify me. I need other people to validate me. It's simply an expression of the deeper problem of I'm not resting in God's justification, his not guilty verdict. Ultimately, rest is only going to be found when we collapse into the arms 
of our Savior in complete and utter faith, in complete and utter repentance for the forgiveness of our sins. You're only gonna have, you can only enjoy real rest today when the rest of your eternity is settled. When we have eternal rest, that begins to work backwards into our today. When I know no matter what happens, my eternity is secure, my relationship with God is firm, that I can tackle everything else in my life that might change, knowing that at the bottom of it, there is a bedrock that's never going to move. My relationship with God. The object of our hope is Him. See, all the things that we look for, to give us security and satisfaction in life, will disappear. I find all my happiness and joy in my family, and if I can keep my family close and I can keep them healthy and I can keep them present, guess what? Eventually, kids will move away. Parents will pass away. Death, job changes will take that from us. If all of our anxiety ultimately comes from a fear of death, a fear of rejection, a fear of not having enough, then peace comes when I know that my eternal life is secure, my relationship with God is stable, and He will never leave me or forsake me. Every human life will end. Your health will eventually deteriorate, and it will be your funeral that folks will attend one day. No matter how much you exercise or diet or go to the doctor, that's the case. Every relationship will one day end. Even the best marriage will one day end. And no amount of money will ever Provide security, eventually taxes or inflation or a stock market crash will nibble away at that. That's why the psalmist says, let Israel hope in the Lord from henceforth and forever. If we're going to have hope that drives anxiety and restlessness out, we need a hope that's never, ever going to change. It's only as we take the long view that we're able to tackle the immediate challenges of life. So hoping in God is not simply, this is not just a tactic. It's not just a tool to be like, okay, I need another tool to go against anxiety. Okay, I'm going to recite some Bible verses to make it. I'm not giving you a Band-Aid to put on a brain tumor here. This is the real solution, is a vital relationship with God, resting in Him and His goodness. You see, it's cultivating this kind of hope before anxiety attacks. It's having this kind of confidence before the problems come down the road that will prepare you prepare you for it. It's setting our confidence on God's promises, on the light of His promises that will enable us to trust when the other lights go out. What a contrast to our noisy, our our hurried, our chaotic, our anxious age. What a contrast maybe to what's going on in your heart this morning. I want to urge you as we get ready to come before the Lord's table, Maybe to apply what you've just learned. Maybe there's some idols in your heart, some desires in there that you're like, I've been after running after these things has left me anxious and empty. Those are idols, things that take the place of God. You know what, I, what, you know what needs to happen to idols? They need to be toppled and smashed. Maybe there's places where you've been hoping in yourself rather than in God that need to be confessed. Maybe it's this running up Staircases of sand, running after an addiction, trying to medicate your problems away. Confess that to God. This psalm does not merely tell us how to turn the volume down on our soul's chaos. It shows us the gospel. It shows us how we ought to be living in complete dependence on the cross of Jesus rather than trying to climb our own ladders. 
Trust in him now. Trust in him forever. Would you bow with me as we prepare our hearts to come to the Lord's table together?